Welcome to Connected Philanthropy. In today's episode, we are hearing from community foundations discuss how they are managing change. This discussion comes from a recorded Coffee Talk webinar that Foundant hosted. And for those of you that don't know, Foundant hosts these Coffee Talk webinars as an opportunity for either funders or nonprofits to come together and share best practices, ask questions, and just connect with one another. There's always a lot of great discussion and ideas that come out of these webinars, so I would highly encourage those of you listening to participate, and you can do that by going to foundant.com forward slash events. That link will be in the description. But for those of you who can't join live, this podcast is a great alternative where you can just listen to a tightened up recording with the main takeaways included. In today's episode, the main topics covered are fund minimums, how to deal with inactive fund holders, Community Suite's grant catalog feature, individual giving trends, and how to engage young people in philanthropy. So without further ado, let's dive right in and hear from our Community Foundation participants. Hi, I would be interested to know, um, what are people's minimums for opening a fund? Because we've talked about, in order to focus more on equity of lower, possibly lowering the minimum, about how much people are giving when they open funds. I don't know if anyone has a um, suggestion for that, if I'm going off subject, because this is a change we're going through. We also thought maybe there were other ways that people, if we shouldn't take down, our minimum is $10,000. Hey, this is Linda. I'm on Community yep. Foundation of Southern Wisconsin. We've got community funds. That's like like we have different affiliates with our communities. We serve nine counties across Wisconsin, but we've got like, you know, probably a total of like almost 800 funds, but we have community funds. That's 50,000 minimum. A donor advised is 15. Scholarship is 25,000. A designated or field interest is 10,000 and an agency or org fund is 10,000. And we've raised those. It used to, we know we've gone up about 5,000 on everything. And I, and I think, you know, to that point, Julia, you're almost talking about an entirely different program or initiative. And so there does need to be some pretty clear guardrails on a program like that so that it's manageable. Uh, and it might have to fall outside of your standard fund administration so that they can be more sponsored type opportunities to create engagement and uh, yeah because we're we're you know our donor advised fund is ten thousand and these are just regular donor advised funds mm-hmm. and so uh, some of them are passed through some of them are not <laughs> but they're not community initiatives or endowed funds they're just regular donor advised funds and our thought was if we want to be more equitable maybe lowering that to $5,000. Um, but, you know, there is there are the fees and the administrative costs, and we would have we might have to change the fees if for the lower um, threshold funds. So. Hi. We actually had pretty low minimum balances, $5,000, and we had allowed donors to take up to five years to get to that point. Um, and it was just too much um, administrative wise. So we increased um, to $10,000. And for our scholarship funds, they are only endowed now and the minimum is 25,000. You know, we have limited staff here. uh, And it was just, again, especially the scholarship funds. And um, 
you know, especially the ones too that were not endowed or what we call non-permanent funds, it was a struggle, you know, to get people to continuously, oh, it's time for scholarship, you know, do you want to add this? So we've just eliminated the option um, for non-permanent funds. However, what we do have is a general scholarship fund so that if somebody wants to contribute to education in some way, that they could make a donation to that fund. Um, but again, as far as the named funds, we we, wrote, we raised the minimum creating gift. Okay. A um, couple other questions in here that um, I think are, I, I'm going to ask out loud. How do many of you deal with inactive fund holders? Have you been able to get them re-engaged? Hello, everyone. Um, so one of the things that we do here at the foundation, so we have a policy in place. So anything, any inactivity for a fund, specifically donor advice funds, um, three years or more, it's considered inactive. Mm-hmm. So that's a part of our policy. And what we have in place is that <clears throat> our CFO goes in once a year and pulls a list of the people that were inactive or who have been inactive for three years, passes me the list. And what I do is, in our effort to do outreach, we try to reach out via email, via phone, and we try to reconnect with them. We have a lot of the donors who are, or fund holders who are inactive, who have been with the foundation for a long time. So it's a lot of the conversations are talking for the first time with them after a long time. Um, so it's also an opportunity to re-engage our fund holders at the same time, aside just getting them from moving from inactive to active. Um, so that's just sort of how we do it. We do it on an annual basis and we just try to get people to, and we do every effort we can. We, we email, if they don't answer the email, we call, if they don't, if they don't answer that, then we just send a letter to the mail. Thanks for sharing. Anyone else got any fun strategy tips? Yes. Hi. I specifically uh, work with inactive funds here at the Alaska Community Foundation, and it was a detailed um, use of a collaborative um, process building, and the components were put into a process document whereby inactive funds have a variety of ways that they touch our uh, or they may have touched our foundation through finance, through grant side, through development side. So we make sure that every component of the organization has a look at the list of inactive funds and can weigh in on that before I begin my research. I do thorough research on all of the inactive funds, and then I bring them once again to the attention of the leadership here before I begin my outreach to uh, find them or to re-communicate with them or to invite them back. And it can be, it has been extremely useful. Um, I went from a large list and I have been very successful at bringing in, I would say all but one Um, is just really, it's, I can't find. Well, that's great to hear. Okay, we got one question in the chat that I'll admit I'm partial to. Um, Has anyone (laughs) here implemented C-Suite's grant catalog feature for their portal? We're exploring how to make this work and are hoping to hear of successes. We love it. Great. (laughs) Best thing ever. 
most of the time. Yeah. Um, you have to test it right before, before you launch a, a major wide community initiative um, because sometimes they, the one thing great about Bama and C-Suite is they continuously improve their product, but sometimes the improvements happen in a way that affects something you've already set up. So you got to test the catalog before you launch it, right before. Um, but aside from that caveat, um, we do. We realized our community was not doing Giving Tuesday. The nonprofit. We don't. We don't have foundations. We don't have corporations in our community, and so, you know, the nonprofits are hand to mouth. And we use this catalog feature <clears throat> to help seventy seven local nonprofits. Um, participate in Giving Tuesday. And first year we raised 850,000. We had 200,000 in match that we applied to that 850. The second year we had 400,000 in match and we raised a million two. And uh, last year we raised a million eight. And wow. um, and we had 500 plus in match. And um, the gifts were um, about Last year, about 500,000 of it came through credit cards through the catalog. Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, we trained all these nonprofits how to raise the money. And so they also dropped off checks and sent, the, you know, their donors donated stock as well. But we, so we could enter into the catalog, the gift, let's say for Fable Urban Ministry, we could enter a gift into the catalog or someone could go online and enter and then at the end, there's all these buckets of money for the 77 organizations and the check and the and the grant is just really easy to get the get out. Um, you know, of course, obviously, I'm not the one who does it or I wouldn't be saying how easy it was. But <laughs> our whole our whole team is involved and it is a really good feature. Um, I, I want to it's one way that we include donors of all abilities to give. You can limit the gift, like minimum gift, $20, I mean, or $25, but um, you don't have to do that. And it's just a way you can engage people in giving to what they care about at any level. Yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah, Stephanie here asked, um, you know, do you put the catalog out to the masses or just to your fund holder? Oh, we, we put it out to the masses and to the masses, we, have, yeah. we, we do training for the nonprofits and teach them how to um, how to reach out to their donor base. And we give them um, template language and, and a direct link, a URL for their catalog. So they're not worried about, you know, they don't send a link to our website. They send a link to their catalog donation spot. Right. Um, so that they're promoting their online giving opportunity to their um, to their donors. We 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 had um, two two thousand seven hundred and twenty two donors. I mean, we serve one county in a, in a fairly low wealth area. Um, right. So yeah, and 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 eight hundred of those were first time donors to our wow. foundation. That's so, incredible. Um, yeah, the nonprofits raised more money. Um, we met new donors. Now we know what they care about, so they're good prospects for designated endowments, um, the lowest cost um, fund to manage, and so it's so just a you know, and and the not more importantly, the nonprofits get general support. Yeah, yeah for sure. What uh, you know, that's a really successful campaign there. That sounds like you guys did really well with that. 
Thank you for and, sharing, Mary. I like we have an off-topic question. We should probably yeah. get that one in there. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was just waiting until yeah, Grant Cattle yeah. discussion kind of <laughs> hopped <laughs> off, but I'll go ahead and uh, read this one out. Um, one change we have seen is an increase in tributes in memory of someone who has died in the community. Tributes require a lot of administrative rece- uh, receding to donors who likely don't donate again um, if they live outside the community specifically. Rather than send receipts to all, we sometimes just provide a list to the family and let them send a thank you. What priority do other foundations put on receiving tracking tribute donors? Uh, we use the description of the grant recommendation to communicate the nonprofit needs to notify the family with the donation. If the family, if they need the family's contact info, they contact us. That's what Madeline said. Um, I got one from Shannon here. Uh, because funds have a distinct URL, recently a fund holder had their fund URL linked to a QR code that was printed in a funeral program. A very successful way for loved ones to scan the QR code from their phone and make a direct donation to the fund. I think that that's an incredible way to keep up with change. Everyone's carrying their phone with them everywhere, right? Like just. And it gets back to where we started this conversation with just the ease of online donations and people taking the time to do it uh, more instantaneously than waiting for to send in a check. That's, that's a great, great observation. Yeah. And, it, and I think that correlates to all of your events, right? Like it's not just in this case, a funeral, it could also be right. for any yeah. gathering that you have is just making the QR code accessible. Um, that's a great tool to just sort of make it more immediate that people could follow up while they're even, even while they're sitting at the event talking, they might be compelled to just make that donation. So that's yep. great. And, and Linda's made that comment that, you know, they use those QR codes on, on most events now. And I think that's smart to, whether it's linking to a donation page or it's linking to more information, either way, it's just giving them sort of that access to deeper information uh, later. That's great. Agreed. Yeah. Great adaptation of uh, technology there. Mm-hmm. Yep. That feels like one that's sticking around too. Definitely has moved beyond fad phase. So mm-hmm. yeah. Not sure about crypto yet, but yeah. Well, but it, <laughs> but it, it it plays to that like instant sort of connection, right? Of yeah. information, and we're so used to being able to do things instantaneously, and even with the best of intentions, we maybe don't come back to it, or we lose that emotional drive that got us to the event in the first place, right? So I think yeah. that's a so I think it really hits today's discussion well, just talking about the behaviors and what changes are being made and what we can continue to do differently to serve those needs. That's, that's great. Great example. Um, I just wanted to tie in um, the recent presentation I looked at about the giving to, I'm sorry, the uh, giving USA numbers that showed that giving by individuals is actually trending down. The numbers of individuals who are giving is, is declining. Um, Total dollars actually declined, um, but still our total dollars given in the U.S. were very high still, but a lot of it was given by foundations. A lot of it was given by mega donors. Like, you know, there's a McKinsey Scott factor. If you factor out the mega donors, uh, giving is trending down in the United States. Um, as a civic engagement, you know, church attendance, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's very important for all of us to um, make sure that we um, have systems in place that can both 
attract someone who can make a $10,000 gift as well as attract someone who can make a $25 gift. Um, it makes us more of a community foundation as well. Um, it might make us better grant makers, et cetera. Um, but uh, I was pretty surprised to see the data uh, in the Giving USA study. So if you haven't looked at that, um, it's, it's a good tie into um, something that I read maybe, can't remember how old this is, maybe 2016. Um, there was a study called Gilded Giving. It was really fabulous. If you Google it, you might be able to find it. But it also showed um, trending um, the number of donors and donations themselves trending down uh, for donors um, who made 200000 or less. Um, so that's why we like the catalog. That's why the Community Foundation added that to our giving opportunities. Um, was both to um, be, be more inclusive of donors of any ability and to help nonprofits uh, raise general support when they needed it, you know, most, um, but also to acknowledge that um, things are changing. Um, this intergenerational wealth transfer, um, you know, our higher net worth donors that can make these big gifts, um, you know, some of them are dying, but you know, many of most of them will be gone in 15 years. Um, and we have to uh, make sure that we've populated our database with people who do give at all ability to give and expanded the, cur the, the curve of um, who our potential donors are because the world is changing. Yeah, very proactive. Um, I mean, you got that 50, 15 year. Uh, view out there, and I think that that's something that every foundation is feeling, right? Uh, Daryl added to the chat, often conversations center around how to engage young people. Uh, they're not likely to be able to donate large amounts. Yeah, I, I think what people are generally seeing is that young people care about issues. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is just really trying to figure out how to get them engaged, um, even if it is in smaller amounts, right? So... Well, and I think some of that research was really promoting the idea that millennials have been taught a whole bunch around reciprocity of doing good and, and expecting more from their companies to be socially conscious and so forth. And so if they do good, they want they expect some return benefit from it. And that's a that's a shift in the, you know, more of a a, a transactional giving model of just like financially giving. Um, they are looking for deeper levels of engagement around also those financial contributions. And so some of the lead time for millennials is going to really focus more on their their time and their talents, um, as well as their networks in terms of, of philanthropy before it will convert or transition into treasures. And just a longer lead time um, with more sort of affiliate affiliation approaches that are going to be required to kind of make that love and make that that feeling of connection to the cause um, and in particular to the organization that makes all that possible. So uh, be very summer. interesting. So it'd be interesting to kind of see how that plays out and how we have to continue to look at not just digital strategies, but other more long-term approaches to how we engage and make people feel more deeply connected. 
Mary asks, how does everyone balance between keeping updated with information and learning new aspects of philanthropy slash being a community foundation and keeping up with day-to-day duties? Mary wants to know how to do it all. How do we do it all? How are we learning and maintaining our, our current work? Well, I can I can start while we wait to see if anybody has any specific tactics that they're deploying. Um, and thank you, Stephanie, for saying you found <laughs> it. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> but you, there really is a, a reality of just exactly what she says. You have to find balance to be able to lean into what the education and research and learning can can give you, but you also have to maintain the work. But I do think some of the work that we do on a day-to-day basis is, is easily going to inform us of what are the trends simply by engaging with the donors because what we're hearing and seeing from those donors is usually a reflection of some larger trend. And so it's it helps to be able to connect those dots a little bit easier. We're officially kind of at time here. So again, thank you for everyone who took time out of their day to be engaged with your community. Um, and then especially with those who who volunteered information up today so yes we um, appreciate you all thank you very much for your time yep uh have a great day guys